All right, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to be talking about an interesting means, one of the means of growth that God provides. So go ahead and turn your Bibles, your devices. If you brought tablets, you know, the heavy stone things, you could drag those out. Yeah, we're going to talk about those indeed. All right, let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful that you called us into yourself and that you don't leave us in our sins and that you want us to grow in Christ-like faith and you give us the means to do it in so many ways. So as we study one of those ways this morning, pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to your Holy Spirit, that like the Israelites, we wouldn't just stay on this side of the Jordan, that we would cross over into the promised land, into closer relationship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember and do not forget. Sounds a little bit like Jason's sermon from last week. You know, his was titled, Remember to Not Forget. Only the quote, that I just read is actually from verse 7 in today's chapter. You know, it's really tempting to have Nate back there in the audio booth just roll tape, you know, on on Jason's sermon. I can go home, you know. (laughs) Oh, maybe not. Okay. Well, I'd really like that because this this passage has a lot of smack down, you know, that Moses is going to lay on the people of Israel this morning. And that's, that's not very comfortable. And there's certainly some similarities between today's passage and last week's, given the emphasis on remembering. And you may remember that when something's repeated in the Bible, that means we should what? Pay attention, right, okay. Somebody is paying attention. So indeed, we're going to talk more about remembering this morning. But we'll look at it from a slightly different aspect, slightly different angle. And that is rightly remembering past sins. So let's, let's get into chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as the Lord has promised you. Now imagine being among the people of Israel gathered to hear Moses speak on this particular day. It's a day that's been 40 years in the making. Now last week we heard an earlier part of Moses' dialogue on this same day. And it included a reminder about all that God did to do good to his covenant people during those 40 years. Now come on guys, 40 years is a long time. Can't we just cross over now, you know? Are we there yet? The excitement among the crowd standing beside the Jordan River must have been at a fever pitch. 
And if you were in that crowd, the way Moses continues his speech would have been kind of a buzzkill. He started talking about giants and fortified cities. What's going on with that? Well, if you recall the history of Israel, you'll remember that earlier in their journey, they had the chance to enter the promised land when they were camped at Kadesh. You remember that 10 of the 12 spies who scouted out the land came, came back saying, eh, no way, they're all giants. We can't defeat them. And this is despite these same people having seen the waters swallow mighty Pharaoh's army not too long before this moment in time. This is despite God sending 10 plagues to humble Pharaoh just prior to that. Moses is reminding the people that those giants and their fortress cities, they're still there. But so is the God who brought them out of Egypt and through those 40 years. That God has promised to defeat their enemies. They just need to step out in obedient faith this time. I suspect the crowd would have started whispering among themselves at this point. Did, did he really just remind us of our failure to follow God in Kadesh? Now, if the crowd was uncomfortable with that reminder, things were going to get worse. Let's continue. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess, are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Anybody play chess? Okay. If you're a good chess player, and I'm not a good chess player, but I enjoy the game. Like a good chess player who's studied his opponent, Moses knows this people. I mean, he's been with them 40 plus years, right? And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's calling out their sin before they commit it. He knows that in their pride, they'll think that their future success is all about them instead of about God's purposes. Moses is letting them know that before it happens that such is not the case. God is using them to execute judgment on these evil nations and he is fulfilling his promise to their forefathers. Again, knowing the history of Israel, there's something prophetic about these statements. At the same time, it's also a matter of past performance predicting future outcomes, as we'll see in a moment. Now at this point, even the whispering among the crowd has probably stopped. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit has gotten their attention. I suspect many among the crowd had conveniently forgotten about these past sins. And you see, there's, there's two ways that we forget about sins. And the first is that we just kind of push them out of our minds in various ways. Maybe we'll try to convince ourselves that they really aren't sins. And, you know, we surround ourselves with other people who do the same thing to help with that. 
We try to drown their memory with happier memories or perhaps in something like drugs or alcohol. Or we create new religions to convince ourselves that we can atone for our own sins. But these ways always, always fail. And deep down, we know it. But see, the other way, ah, the other way is to cast our sins at the foot of the cross. That way is the only effective way. Because only the work of Christ is sufficient to pay the penalty we owe for our sins. Only the one who died without guilt, for we who are guilty, can say, you are forgiven. Of him the psalmist wrote, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? The Bible is full of such reminders of God's kindness to those who love him. Those who put aside their own pride and selfishness to follow him. Those who receive new hearts that are cleansed of the guilt of their sin. Those who receive power from the Holy Spirit to break those patterns of sin we seem to be stuck in. See, this room is full of such reminders of God's kindness to those who love Him. Men and women saved from lives running at breakneck speed or even a leisurely pace toward destruction. If that's you this morning, stop believing the lies that you can ignore it or fix it yourself. You can't. Only Jesus can. Please ask somebody in this room how he can help you break the pattern of sin. Let's get back to Moses and the people of Israel. And my comment about past performance predicting future outcomes. You see, for those in the audience who were trying hard to convince themselves that they were somehow magically righteous and able to break the patter- their patterns of sin, you see, Moses had a little history lesson for them. Let's continue in the passage. Now, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From that day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me these two, the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of, the, of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Moses is reminding them that in the middle of God covenanting with Israel to do them good, they turned aside to idol worship. It's a sign of unrepentant hearts. Let's continue. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your, your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before. Forty days and forty nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed. In doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful things, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Tabera also, and at Massa, and at Kibrath Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. You've been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them. He has brought them out to them to death in the wilderness, for they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Ouch. Moses is making very clear for Israel that the wages of their sin is death. And he is foreshadowing Christ in how he interceded on their behalf with God so they wouldn't receive the penalty of death they deserved. And that's really important because one should always bring hope with conviction to not leave people in despair. I know when I sin and I become aware of it, my tendency is to withdraw from God. But what he wants for us is to run to him for forgiveness, 
and for Holy Spirit-powered repentance. That repentance breaks the cycle of sin, folks, and helps us grow in holiness. And that's full of hope. We'll see more of this hope in chapter 10 next week. But for day, today, we need to figure out how to apply all this to our own lives. And to do so, we need to start with idol worship. You see, while the Israelites physically made a golden calf to worship, we need to think more about the account of Exodus 32 to understand what they were really worshiping. So Exodus 32 says, So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a golden calf. You see why God was so mad at Aaron? And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A little later in that chapter, Moses speaking to Aaron said, So they gave it the gold to me, Aaron, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, first of all, what a sad attempt by Aaron to spiritualize his sin. I mean, out came this calf, right? Come on. It's as if this calf god had fashioned itself and it stepped out of the furnace, right? I don't think so. To quote Bill Gross, don't do that. Don't try to spiritualize your sin. You see, God's law as recorded in his word makes it perfectly clear as to what is and isn't sin. So don't try to wiggle your way out of it. That's kind of like that pushing it out of your mind thing we talked about earlier. But back to our task. See, the gold and the calf really are symbols of wealth and power. And the fact that they were fashioned by a man into an image to be worshipped attempts to show man's control over both. In other words, man is worshipping man by fashioning idols and fashioning the rules around their worship. And that's exactly what got us in trouble in the garden in the first place. We wanted to be God. This is further emphasized by the frequent description of the people of Israel as stubborn. Right? Someone who is stubborn wants things their way. That's kind of opposite to Jesus, right? Whose life is characterized by words like meek. Lowly, humble, obedient, servant leader. All right, so how does all this stuff fit together? To get there, we need to ask another question. What is the Holy Spirit through Moses trying to get at by bringing up all these past sins and this ingrained stubbornness? To put it simply, growth through awareness. See, if, if we're unaware of or in denial of our sin, apart from Christ, we're just going to keep repeating those sins. And some of those sinful habits are so deeply ingrained that we repeat them even after we come to faith. We need to be made aware of them so that we can repent and grow in Christ's likeness. This is kind of like what Paul's getting at in Romans 3.20. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right? The law helps us to be aware of sin in general, but more is needed to be rid of sin. That more is Christ, right, folks? In this passage, Moses is not only pointing out their sin using the law as a measuring stick, but he's pointing out that it is unrepentant sin because they keep repeating it. If we were in the crowd that day, this would, this would be what we might call a verbal shock and awe assault, right? Can you imagine receiving these words from Moses if you were in the crowd that day? It was designed to shake the people out of their lethargy in regards to dealing with their unrepentant sin. And of course, the danger here is despair, as I mentioned earlier. The result of conviction without hope. So conviction, that calling out of sin, must be handled carefully and appropriately, as is fitting the hearts of the people involved. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, Jenny and I often volunteer raising service dogs. Some of you have probably seen little Zola in the back. One of the things you learn is that there are soft dogs and there are hard dogs. A soft dog will respond to gentle corrections. A hard dog is rather like the Israelites, stubborn, and they need a firmer hand to bring correction. I've noticed that us humans are similar. Sometimes they need a firm hand and sometimes a soft hand. And sometimes, while humans may only need a soft correction in one area of their life, they may need a hard correction in another area. And that gets us to the title of today's sermon. Rightly remembering past sins. Now, we often talk about this, that the Christian life is full of things we need to hold in balance like Christian liberty versus godliness. In this case, the balance is around remembering those past sins because we need to discard the shame and the guilt and the participation in that sin. Yet it can be helpful to remember the negative results of past sins if, if such remembrance helps us to avoid further participation in that sin. This is that growth through awareness I was talking about. For the Israelites, their pattern of sin was so ingrained that Moses was directed by God to use that firmer hand in their correction with this more intense remembering. I mean, I saw it as pretty intense in that passage. What do you guys think? Pretty harsh. Now, while rightly remembering past sins can be useful, there's a few dangers that we need to to be aware of uh, if we take it too far, okay? First of all, it's probably not your job to be Moses to a brother or sister, okay? <laughs> While we're to help point out current unrepentant sin, it's generally not helpful to keep bringing up past sins. Just ask any number of long-term couples about that one, right? It's a surefire way to damage a relationship. And we see this principle elsewhere in Scripture. Listen to Luke chapter 17. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, 
forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's Jesus speaking, folks. Listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So between these two passages, we see an allowance for people's hearts. Someone with a soft heart may only need a gentle correction. It's always the best place to start from if you find yourself in a place where you need to correct someone. That gentle correction. Someone with a hardened heart may need the shock and awe of a rebuke. And I can tell you it's not fun for anyone involved in a rebuke. Certainly not the person hearing it. And not the person who's having to, having to do that rebuking. That's, of course, assuming that the person rebuking is doing so with right motives. Now, that passage in Galatians also highlights the next point of caution. Remember, the end of that passage was, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So point number two here is, don't dwell on the pleasure of the past sin, lest you be further tempted, instead of being deterred from participating. See, that passage in Galatians underlying that is the reality that oftentimes those who've overcome a particular sin are used by God to help others with similar struggles. There's a certain sympathy and gentleness that comes with understanding firsthand the struggles someone is going through. But there's always the danger that in a moment of weakness, the helper can get sucked back into sin. For example... If you're a recovering alcoholic, don't meet with somebody who's struggling with alcohol in a bar. Bad idea. Third thing to watch out for. Over time, the need for this should decrease if you're cooperating with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. We get a sense of this from Romans. I'm going to read a big chunk of Romans here, so bear with me. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we have been established. And we boast because of our hope in God's glory. Not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now this hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For at just the right time, while we were still powerless, the Messiah died for the ungodly. For it is rare for anyone to die for a righteous person, though somebody might be brave enough to die for a good person. But God demonstrates his love for us by the fact that the Messiah died for us while we were still sinners. Now that we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from wrath through him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? 
Not only that, but we also continue to boast about God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom we have now been reconciled. See, the sense here is that as we grow, right? As we grow in Christ's likeness, the need for this sort of stepping stone should decrease. Especially when you make the connection that most of our suffering is a result of our sin. And this seems to be in view in today's passage as well. Remember how Moses reminded the people of their sin of disobedience at Kadesh and all those other places? But that particular sin resulted in their 40 years of wandering. So here's the thing. With growth, sin loses its attractiveness. Especially the more we come to understand the incredible beauty and depth of God's love for us. And that brings us to our bottom line this morning. Rightly remembering past sins and the suffering they have caused can help us stand firm in the face of temptation. I mean, why would we want to enter back into that same suffering we've been rescued from? Is the sin really that pleasurable? So let's use this sort of remembering wisely as we speak, seek to grow in holiness to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what joy there is this morning that you have, in your mercy and your grace, forgiven us of our sins. You've given us your Holy Spirit so that we have a comfort and a constant reminder that, that we are yours. And that in that is the desire to grow more in Christ-likeness, to put those sins behind us, to not find them attractive because you are so lovely, so full of grace and mercy and love for us. And of course, the danger of grace and knowing that we're forgiven, Lord, is that we take it for granted. Let us not. It's such a joy to walk without the shame and the guilt of our past sins. We want to leave them behind. We don't want to become ensnared and tempted again by them. But when we do, we know we're forgiven. And we want to continue walking forward even when we do sin, Lord. We want to continue growing in holiness and not get stuck on this side of the Jordan River. We want to go on the other side because we want to bring you glory and expand your kingdom. And we need your power and strength to do it. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.